Father God, I'm so glad that we can have this Sunday just to be family and friends, to be in your presence, to sing your praise, to study your word, to be encouraged by your spirit, to be empowered by your presence, and then to represent you, that Christ be magnified in us in ways that can make Easter real long after last week, long after this day, so that every day the risen Christ will be risen in me, risen in us. Show us how that works, Lord. Show us how that can be our experience today. I pray for me and I pray for us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So I bring you greetings from Upland, Indiana. I bet you've never heard those words before. I'm guessing, you know. Upland, Indiana is right there. It's that red dot there. If you've not been, well, I'm not shocked that that might be the case. 3,700 people live in Upland, Indiana. They have an old uh, railroad station there. That's kind of the claim to fame. Railroad used to go through Upland, Indiana. That's why it's 3,700 people now, opposed to what it was. But the reason I was there is because of Taylor University, which is one of the oldest evangelical universities in America, one of the finest. In fact, in that whole region, it's ranked the number one university in that entire part of the world. Uh, founded 1846. So they've been celebrating their 175th anniversary for a year. You know, universities do this. Sesquicentennial, I think they call it. And then they asked me to come up and spend Friday with them uh, to speak in chapel and do some stuff with the donors, that sort of thing. And I did that because of their president. This is Dr. Michael Lindsay, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world. Michael graduated summa cum laude from Baylor. Then he did a master's at Princeton, another master's at Oxford, then a PhD at Princeton, taught uh, sociology at Rice, was named their finest faculty member at Rice, and then became president at Gordon College for 10 years in New England and now is president at Taylor. And he's only 13 years old. I mean, how's that possible? <laughs> and that's not a 30-year-old picture. That's what he looks like. It's incredible. He is such a gift. He is such a mind and such a heart. He and Rebecca are just terrific. Rebecca grew up at Park Cities where Jen and I last pastored. And it's how we know them is through that connection. Actually did his ordination service. And just a terrific, terrific person. So he had me come speak in chapel. That's what their chapel looks like. It's a little bigger than ours, but not as pretty. There are no chapels as pretty as this one. And I may not be asked back. I think I might have blown it. Because I started my chapel address by making a heretical statement. Which is not how you're supposed to start chapel, right? Probably hadn't happened in 175 years. I admitted it was heresy at the very beginning. I said, look, I just have to make a statement to you. No one in 20 centuries of Christian history would agree with this. No one on your faculty would. But I'm just going to say it. And then I made the same statement you've heard me make in chapel here before, which is that inherited original sin skipped my granddaughter. I'm convinced of that. I know it's heretical, but I'm convinced of it. And I tried to convince them of that. And you're wondering, well, why would I say all of that? I said that to make a second statement that I want to make you, to you today that sounds heretical, but it's not. Because of my grandchildren, four of them, four perfect grandchildren, my granddaughter especially perfect, I, therefore, have four things the almighty, omnipotent God of the universe does not have. Because I have grandkids and he doesn't. God has no grandchildren. We must all be born again. You can't inherit this thing. You can't pass it on. We each need a personal relationship with a personal God. The Christian faith, the Christian movement is always one generation from extinction. Always is. Easter was last week. If we don't pass it on, 
Easter is just a holiday. If we don't experience Jesus, if we don't lead other people to experience Jesus, it's just a day of the week, just a day of the year. I think that was in Paul's mind when he wrote this passage. This is in 2 Timothy, the last letter he ever wrote. We'll talk about that in a second. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul makes this statement to Timothy, his son in the faith. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men. And in the text, it means men and women in the way that the Greek works. Faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. I'm convinced that if you and I will claim the two imperatives of this text, we will experience the risen Christ as though it were the first Easter every day. And God will use us to make a transformative difference in a culture that so needs it to be Easter every day in their lives. So let me set a little bit of context and we'll walk through this passage and we'll apply it to our lives. This is a book I recommend to you. It's by Carl Truman entitled Strange New World. He's an intellectual historian. His previous work is a 400-page magnum opus, academic kind of a treatise. It's extremely well done, but it's an academic book. And so a lot of folk came along and said, you need to kind of make that available in a more accessible, shorter, uh, easier-to-read sort of a thing, and that's what he's done. This is not at all a hard thing to read. You can get through it really quickly, but it explains why we're where we are. It connects the dots. It explains kind of how we got to where we are as a culture today. It's just really, really well done. And in it, he makes a remarkable statement. He says, you and I are living in a time that has, quote, no obvious historic precedent in American history, where we are right now. So you go back to history. 1798, John Adams, second president, wrote a letter to the Massachusetts militia in which he makes this statement. We, America, have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, and revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, said John Adams, 1798. Two years earlier, in George Washington's farewell address, our first president said this, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And then he made this statement, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle, said George Washington. Well, that was then, this is now. Gallup reported last year that the percentage of Americans that have any kind of relationship with the church, synagogue, or mosque has fallen below 50% for the first time in American history. Less than half of Americans even have a membership. We're not talking about attendance here. Even a membership, a relationship of any kind with a church, synagogue, or mosque. Only 24% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God. One in four. The percentage who think the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. Saw so a study the other day said 74% of Americans say morality is whatever works for you that doesn't hurt me. 92% say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. There's a movement happening right now in the academy. We're seeing it on the coast. We're going to see it here as well. 
It's a movement which is making the claim that religion as a category is dangerous. That we sophisticated people now know that religion is an outdated, irrelevant, superstitious mythology. We now know that religion flies planes into buildings, causes 9-11s, clergy abuse scandals. There was a thing today, I noticed this morning in Medium, where this guy writing an, an article explaining how the unrest right now in Israel, stuff going on on the Temple Mount between the Palestinians and the Israelis and all that because of Ramadan and Passover is just another example of how damaging religion is, how dangerous religion is. Christopher Hitchens wrote a best-selling book some years ago entitled God is Not Great, subtitled How Religion Poisons Everything. That what we need is to replace religion with a secular ideology focusing on personal authenticity. Now, aren't you glad you came to chapel today, huh? That's where we are. That's what Truman's talking about in his book. That's exactly what he's addressing. When he says what we're facing now is no obvious historic precedent. Now, I'm not saying we're in North Korea. I'm not saying we're in communist China. I'm not saying we're in Cuba. I've been those places. We're, what I'm saying is we haven't seen this in America when George Washington, John Adams, would say that you can't do America without religion and morality. And now we're saying we don't need religion and morality, it's whatever you think it is. That's unprecedented. So some years ago, I was part of a tour group that went into Carlsbad Caverns. Went out at the bottom of the caverns, they had a sit-down, tour guide turned off his flashlight. Pitch black. Couldn't see the hand in front of my face. Then a minute later, he turned it on, and you couldn't help see it. You were drawn instinctively to it. And in that moment, that small flashlight defeated the darkness of that giant cavern. And I learned this. The darker the room, the more powerful the light. The darker the room, the more powerful the light. And that's the promise I want us to claim today. So when Paul's writing the text that we're talking about very briefly here, he's in this place. This is the Mamertine Dungeon in Rome. Janet and I have been there. We've led study groups through. Uh, this is in Paul's second imprisonment. His first imprisonment, if you remember his life and his story, the book of Acts ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome. He was arrested. He winds up in Rome. He's under house arrest for two years. His friends can come and see him. He's actually writing some of the New Testament during that time. As we piece together the parts of Paul's letters that don't fit in the book of Acts, scholars believe that Paul was freed from that imprisonment. He had what we would think of as a fourth missionary journey. He was arrested, again, probably in Neapolis, and this time he was brought back to Rome to be executed. The Romans did not imprison you as a punishment. They didn't sentence you to two years in prison. They put you in jail till they could figure out what to do with you. Prison wasn't itself a sentence. It was a means to a larger end. In this case, Mambertime Dungeon is where they put people before they executed them. It's a cavern. I could only stand up in the center of it. Onto the sides, the ceiling curves down like that. That post that you see there is by tradition where Paul was chained, and the hole was the sanitation. And this next, that's the hole in the roof that he was let down through. In our day, there's steps to get down there, but in his day, that's what it looked like. And that's where he is when he writes 2 Timothy. That's what he means when in 2 Timothy he says, the time of my departure is at hand. And it wasn't long after this that he was taken out and beheaded at a place called Trefontaine. And so he's there. He's writing this last letter. What's the future? The Roman Empire looks a lot like America. 
in terms of the immorality of the thing, the decadence of the thing, the rejection of the faith, the rejection of the Christian movement. They're getting ready to execute the greatest apostle, missionary, theologian in Christian history. What's the future look like? Well, here's the future. The darker the room, the brighter the light. We have to do two things, two imperatives. First one's right here. You then, by child, be strengthened. That's the first imperative. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, it means by the grace that Christ Jesus provides. Be strengthened. It's a present passive imperative. It's a command to be fulfilled every day. Experience the grace of Jesus every day. Read his word. Pray. Worship him. Confess your sins. Submit to him. Be filled with the Spirit. We've talked about that. Be surrendered. Start your day by getting alone with God. Land the plane at the front of the runway. You can't use the runway behind you, as they tell the pilots. Start the day with him. Be strengthened. Begin your day by making him your king, by meeting him in worship and prayer and Bible study, by connecting, by getting empowered, by getting plugged in, by being surrendered to Jesus every single day. That's the first imperative. Be a transformed follower of Christ. So countercultural. In Paul's day, that's what worship looked like. Those are some of the altars at Ephesus. Jan and I have led a lot of groups to Ephesus over the years. In the Roman culture of Paul's day, you had this transactional religion. Place a sacrifice at the altar so the God will bless your crops. Or keep you safe in war. Or give you whatever you're asking for. That is how most Americans see religion. Go to church on Sunday so God will bless you on Monday. Read the Bible so God will bless your day. Give money so God will bless your money. Transactional religion. God wants a transformational relationship. God wants us to know Christ every single day. Have you been strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus lately? When's the last time re reading the Bible changed something you were going to do or not do? When's the last time you were different because you prayed? When's the last time you left chapel different? When's the last time you were strengthened by the grace in Christ Jesus? That's the last time you experienced Easter. That's when you met the risen Christ. And that can be every moment of every day. So the first piece is horizontal. The other piece, or excuse me, is vertical. The other piece is horizontal. To know Christ and to make Christ known. The text continues. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Give what you've received. Pay forward the grace that has changed you. Give someone what God gave you or the movement stops. The kingdom ends. If Timothy doesn't do what Paul's asking, it stops with Timothy. If we don't share with the next generation, it stops with us. Because the Christian faith is always one generation from extinction. Now, that's good for us as well. Have to breathe out to breathe in. Have to give to receive, right? You've heard this illustration, but let me make it really visual if I can. That's the Sea of Galilee. Prettiest body of water, I think, in the world. It's a remarkable place. It's not large. It's seven and a half miles wide, 14 miles deep, like that, 600 feet below sea level. But it is a vibrant body of water. 22 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Remarkable place. Only 32 miles circumference, 64 square miles, about the size of Washington, D.C., in fact, when we get on the Sea of Galilee, when we do our tours there, and we always get on a boat on the Sea of Galilee, I usually say that Washington, D.C. would fit in the Sea of Galilee, and that might not be a bad idea, you know? Just go ahead and put it there. I don't know. Might not be a bad, might not be a bad thought, but we digress. Moving right along. 
in Jesus' day, it was even more fished than it is today. There were 16 piers along the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee that have been discovered by the archaeologists from fishing there. Incredibly vibrant body of water, and here's why. The Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. That's one of the headwaters, four different headwaters that make up the upper Jordan that flows into the Sea of Galilee. Then water flows out of the Sea of Galilee, the lower Jordan, that's what that looks like, flowing out of the Sea of Galilee, and it makes its way down. Jordan means descender. It descends down until it dumps finally into the Dead Sea, but water doesn't flow out of the Dead Sea. It only flows in. And it eventually evaporates and leaves all the minerals behind. It's ten times saltier than seawater. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Nothing. The Jordanian patrol boats have to change their propellers every six months. Nothing can live there. And it's the same water. It's the same water that starts with the snows on Mount Hermon and the springs that are up north of the Sea of Galilee that creates the upper Jordan that flows into the Sea of Galilee, flows out of the Sea of Galilee, flows into the Dead Sea. The only difference is the Sea of Galilee gives out, the Dead Sea only takes in. It's the only difference. If you want to know Christ, you have to make him known. The best way to learn is to teach. To experience Jesus' presence, share Jesus' presence. To experience his grace, give away his grace. Give it away for your sake and for their sake. It's crucial for Timothy's soul that what he's heard from Paul and the princes of many witnesses, he entrusts to faithful men who can teach others also. But it's also crucial for the movement itself. That's how the movement works. Teaching others who will teach others. So I've said this before, but I'll remind you of it today. If we grew by addition, which is the way a lot of people think the church is supposed to work, where the preacher does the work, where the pastors do the ministry, where the ministers so-called do the ministry, right? It's the way most people think it works. That's what we hire these guys for. That's what we pay their salaries for. We don't pay any salaries here. We're an all-volunteer deal. But if we were a traditional church and you were paying my salary, as it were, a lot of people think, well, that's what you pay me for is to do the ministry. You pay doctors to do medicine. You pay dentists to do dentistry. You pay pastors to pastor, right? And so it's their job. Why are you telling me to do this? That's your job. Paul told Timothy this stuff. Why are you bothering me about this? I'm here on Sunday. I'm here in chapel. That's your job to be winning people to Jesus, to be sharing the faith, to be making a difference in the culture. That's what we pay you for, is how a lot of churches look at the minister, so to speak, right? Well, if we did it that way, by addition, I'll be 64 next month, 65 the year after that, if the Lord tarries and leaves me here. If I could win one person a day, every day, till I turn 65, that'd be 400 people. Wouldn't that be wonderful? 400 people. If on the other hand, by God's grace, Let's say Brian's the only Christian there is, and he somehow wins me to Christ. In spite of the heresy I used at Trinity or at Taylor University this week and my claims about my perfect granddaughter, he won me to Christ. Now there are two of us. Let's say tomorrow we each win, and now there are four of us. Let's say the next day we each win one, and now there's eight of us, and then 16 and 32 and 64, and so on. In 33 days, that's the number. In 33 days, if Brian was the only Christian on the planet, but we did what Paul tells Timothy, in 33 
days, more than the entire planet, has come to Christ. That's how it works. Crucial for me, crucial for the kingdom. And so that's what Paul asked Timothy to do. Know Christ and make Christ known. The reason the Holy Spirit left that word in the Bible is not just for Timothy's sake, but for our sake. If you'd like to know Easter every day, if you'd like to meet the risen Christ every day, that's how you do it. So I'll ask you again, when last were you strengthened by the grace of Christ? Why not today? Why not get some time with him today? Read his word, worship, plug in, get connected, get surrendered. With whom are you sharing the grace of Christ? What need are you meeting? What hurting person are you praying for? What text will you send? What email? What phone call? How will you serve somebody the way you've been served? At the end of the day, the more we know Jesus, the more we are like Jesus, and the more other people want to know Jesus because they see Jesus in us. So I saw this quote and thought I'd end with it from N.T. Wright, perhaps the finest New Testament theologian of our day. You become like what you worship when you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you, be, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. So one way to know the degree to which we're worshiping Jesus is the de degree to which we're more like Jesus. Let's make that our prayer today. Pray with me. Take just this moment, just you and God. And would you ask Jesus to help you be more like Jesus? That's what I'm praying for my soul right now. Ask Jesus to help you be more like Jesus. Ask his spirit to help you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ, in his word and his worship and prayer. Every day, ask him to help you to make that your daily experience. And now would you ask him to put on your heart somebody who needs what you can do. Somebody who needs your ministry, your compassion, your gifts, your resources, your wisdom, your experience. How will you pay forward what God has given you? Ask him to put that name, that person on your heart, even right now. And now thank him for all the ways the risen Christ will be risen in your life because of today. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful to know that when you rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, you are just as alive in this world and in our hearts as when all of that happened. So grateful, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit who made us the temple of the Spirit, today's Easter and tomorrow's Easter. May it be Easter for us, and for those we influence, I pray for me and for us. In Jesus' holy name, amen. God bless. Y'all have a great day.